Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, you could call it a special session. You could call it an extraordinary session. You could say that it was an especially extraordinary session, but whatever you call it, wow, that was uh, that was something. That, that was, uh, holy cow, that was, uh, that was something, something this week. Yeah, I, uh, th- you know, this week the big story was the legislature just wrapped up a rare special session of the legislature. Uh, it's the fourth one in the last 20 years. We don't do this very often. And the governor called this to address a couple of issues, you know, related to the coronavirus pandemic, um, election issues, but the real issue that affects educators and the real issue that drew the most attention at the state house was this issue of immunity from liability, from damages uh, resulting from the pandemic, exposure to the coronavirus. That was kind of the big bill of the special session, but it was really overshadowed by everything else in the special session. We had these large crowds, unruly crowds, protesters. There were arrests on two of the three days of the special session. I believe Ammon Bundy, in fact, the rancher, who led the armed occupation of that Oregon wildlife refuge in mm-hmm. 2016, he was wheeled out of the state house by Idaho State Police, uh, two separate days arrested, and then was handed a one-year ban from the state house. But we had crowds pushing past police that broke a glass door above the house chambers before the session even gaveled in on Monday. We had meetings that were disrupted and went off the rails and wound up with members of the audience shouting disgusting obscenities uh, from their chairs and in the hallway. Uh, I, I mean, we knew it was going to be sort of the Wild West. We didn't know exactly what to expect, but I've, I've never seen anything like that at all, really. It's it, hard to process. It, it was. It was It was alarming. It, you know, you and I, we've spent enough time covering the legislature, and we know we know that emotions can run high. We, yeah. we know we've covered enough hearings and we've covered enough protests and demonstrations that we know that sometimes the process is is very heated and very emotional. This felt different. And, you know, I didn't spend very much of the, the three days there. I was there for a little bit on Tuesday afternoon and a little bit on Wednesday afternoon. So I wasn't there for the the first day and, and the... Uh, the confrontation outside the House chambers. Uh, Arsani Edge was there taking some pictures. Um, this was this was disturbing because it's one thing to be upset and it's one thing to be emotional about issues. And let's face it, everybody's emotional and on edge five months into a pandemic. Everybody has fears and frustrations and anger. But to have that spill over the way it spilled over uh, uh, before the session even began Monday morning it is really alarming. It's, and I think it left a lot of policymakers really concerned. You know, when I went over on Wednesday afternoon, I went there partly to listen to, to Scott Bedke and ask him a question at a, at a news conference. And the, the demonstrations and the protests came up in, in the Q&A. And he said, you know, part of the problem is that between the pandemic and the protests, 
you've created a situation where other people, some other Idahoans, many other Idahoans maybe, feel uncomfortable being in the state house, being engaged and being involved in the process. And that's, as he put it, that's not how it ought to be. And he said, you know, that's something that's going to that's gonna stick with me for a while. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. You know, that's a really that interesting was kind of that's kind of a telling thing. You know, what little time I spent over there this week. So, I, you know, I want to be up front. I wasn't there from gavel to gavel. Well, little time I spent there, it felt different. It felt really tense and it was kind of palpable. And, you know. Like I say, I've been there enough sessions and I've been there for enough hearings and I've been there for enough protests that I could feel this one was just a little bit different. And, you know, it, that's that's concerning. Yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. You know, for me, I made the choice to cover it online remotely and followed it from afar. But obviously, thanks to the streaming video and social media um, and, and cell phone videos, I was able to see, you know, what I needed to see in terms of the... Uh, the protests and the arrests. Can we just say again quickly, thank goodness for Idaho in session. Thank goodness for our friends over at Idaho. Oh, Public yeah. Like, that's what... Idaho in session, which is a godsend for anybody who wants to follow uh, what's going on in state government, whether you're in Boise or anywhere around the state. I mean, where would we be without the streaming? That's the free online streaming service that's available uh, through Idaho Public Television, and it's available through the legislature's website. And so that's what kept me... Uh, connected with the session, but I think you're absolutely right. And with the large crowds, you know, it was, uh, some of it was the normal folks that you'd see at the state house, the lobbyists, uh, the people connected to the different, you know, they call them stakeholder groups, but the people who are affected by the bills, certainly some people that were just watching the legislation, legislative session play out, um, all that would have been normal. However, they were also um, some folks associated with Ammon Bundy, obviously, and the Three Percenters group, and there were some folks with the Health Freedom Idaho group. And so those are some of the folks that had been like disrupting the Southwest District Health meetings earlier this summer. And so that wasn't just normal Idahoans, uh, regular citizens with no agenda, you know, coming out um, and wreaking havoc at the, the state house. Um, you know, some of those people were part of organized groups that have been uh, leading disruption disruptive type efforts throughout the pandemic and certainly have um, a perspective on, on their different things. And, but it was a lot of different things at once. The immunity bill proved very unpopular with the public, but it did pass and was signed into law. But I don't think it was just one thing that people were upset about or protesting about. A lot of people were upset about Governor Little's earlier statewide stay home order. A lot of people were upset about some of the restrictions to group sizes and gatherings and businesses that have been implemented by local public health districts, which operate independently across the state. I want to say there's seven of them. And a lot of people were upset with masks and they say we need to get the economy opening and we need to get beyond the pandemic. But it seemed like that the way they chose to attack the pandemic was to attack the um, emergency order and and to rebuke the governor for the previous stay home order. There wasn't a lot of talk about you know the virus itself and getting the pandemic from a health perspective under control. It was more about the freedom and liberty, at least in the vocal um, opposition that I was hearing. It felt like as I listened to the committee hearings on 
the civil liability bill. And, and you, you listened to more of it than I did. But as I listened to it, especially Wednesday morning when the House uh, Judiciary Committee was going through it, a lot of the testimony really had very little to do with the bill itself. It oh, had yeah. Much more to do with, you know, our state of mind, the Hollins, five months into this pandemic. On and Wednesday. Those frustrations and those fears and those angers, which are real. Yeah. And I, I understand that. We all feel that. But Wednesday the, morning the was. The legislation wasn't really about the nuts and bolts of the legislation. No, Wednesday morning, I thought, was the one where it strayed the most from the bill itself. We had somebody get up and dissect the final three lines of the Pledge of Allegiance. We had people talk about their conspiracy theories with 5G technology. We had somebody talking about uh, bribes and corruption down in Guatemala. I mean, none of these things had anything to do with the bill to provide protection from liability. It was it was all over the place, and, and as I listened to it Monday afternoon, the first round of it, uh, you know, I think there was just a lot of just you know frustration and fear and you know just impatience with where we are. Yeah, and, and not so much about the details of the bill, uh, the bills, because at that point we were looking at multiple multiple bills. What what eventually emerged on Wednesday was uh, a somewhat uh, scaled back version of the civil liability bill. Uh, Julianne Young, uh, first term lawmaker from Blackfoot, really kind of emerged as one of the key brokers in getting a civil liability bill passed. And her version of it, um, I, she brought over, I think, her involvement in the bill and the fact that, you know, the I know Freedom Foundation gave it a neutral score. I think that gave House conservatives uh, permission, authorization to vote for a civil liability bill where maybe uh, some of them uh, came with uh, concerns about it, with opposition. Um, in the end, it passed pretty much on party line, uh, you know, on party lines. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, very close uh, to party lines. They did have, this was House Bill 6, there were five other liability bills that were printed and introduced and considered. They killed yet another liability bill at an introductory hearing. And this one, you know, it was clear by late Tuesday that House Bill 6, Representative Young's bill, was going to be the chosen one if they were going to pass... The home bill, yeah. Yeah, this if they were going to pass a liability bill, this was the horse to bet on, and that became clear Tuesday. Real quickly, what this would do, uh, it would apply to a person, a school district, a college or university, also a corporation or a church, but for our purposes, uh, it applies to school districts, colleges, and universities, and it would grant immunity from civil liability for damages or an injury resulting from exposure of an individual to coronavirus. What it would not do, however, um, it would not cover... Immunity, you would not get immunity for, quote, willful or reckless misconduct. And so what in the world does that mean? The best sense I got is that would be up for a judge and jury to decide. Yeah. Uh, that that's not really up for you and me to decide here and now. That would be something for the courts. But that's the nuts and bolts of the bill for a big bill of its stature. It was actually fairly short, uh, just about two pages. And like you said, Representative Young was able to thread the needle such that I think a lot of legislators maybe were 
hearing opposition to an immunity bill, uh, but maybe kind of held their nose and voted for this one. Yeah, and I thought really kind of the the pivotal vote, the pivotal step in the process was House Judiciary's vote on, on the bill early Wednesday afternoon. You and I, we've been kind of texting back and forth about, well, how does this committee come down on this? Because it was one of those hearings where there was so much public testimony. And as we mentioned, the public testimony was was all over the place, yeah. but largely opposed to any kind of civil well, Overwhelmingly opposed. Only maybe one right. or two. Well, a couple people were like, I don't like immunity, but it, it was weird. These, do, do the, do yeah, people still, were vehemently opposed to immunity. Kind of thing. But by Wednesday, they're like, well, if we got to do one, do this one sort of a thing. Right. So, you know, by and large opposition to the concept and maybe less visceral opposition to uh, Julianne Young's House Bill 6. But as we were watching it, and, you know, there are times watching the legislative process that we find ourselves doing this, a number of lawmakers, a lot of number of members of the committee really didn't say much of anything during the hearing. They didn't ask questions. So it was really hard to get a read on where some of the legislators were. Uh, and I was kind of, we were kind of counting noses, uh, trying to figure out if this thing was going to get out of committee. You could kind of tell the four Democrats on the committee were opposed uh, based on their questions. Um, you could get a sense that there were, you know, some Republicans on the committee who were on board with it. I mean, you know, you know there, there had been a motion to send it to the floor early on yeah. Wednesday morning, but trying to get a read on where there are going to be 10 votes in the committee to get the bill to the House floor. It turned out it passed pretty much on a party line vote, um, foreshadowing what eventually happened on the House floor and what eventually happened over on the Senate. You know, it, certainly an interesting process. I mean, you know, but really kind of overshadowed by the emotion and, and really, I thought kind of overshadowed by how this session became sort of a, you know, you know a, discussion, almost like a group therapy session about the pandemic and the state of our state in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, there was a lot of venting. There was a lot of members of the public who came out chanting uh, and saying to lawmakers, you work for us. Uh, this is our house. And so, yeah, I think it was a lot of venting about frustration, a lot of concern, a lot of concern uh, for businesses and, and for personal freedoms and things uh, of of that nature, um, but yeah, it, it definitely uh, people were letting their frustrations air, and a lot of this was, you know, directed at, at Governor Little. Whether it was specifically something in his emergency order that affected their life that they didn't like, or maybe they just blamed the emergency order. Um, but it seemed like a lot of the concern and ill will uh, was directed at Governor Little, rightly yeah. or wrongly, and. and Governor Little and the emergency declaration. Yeah. It, that really became the flashpoint of a lot of the frustrations this week and the frustrations from the legislators. So short history here. Uh, you, Most of you know this, but uh, it, it bears kind of the walkthrough. Governor Little issued the coronavirus emergency declaration on Friday, March 13th. That was a few hours before the state reported its first coronavirus case. The legislature was still in session at the time and would be in session for a few more days after March 13th. But the order, the declaration has been in place ever since. It's been kind of rolled over on a monthly basis ever since. And 
you know, legislators really took umbrage at the declaration and really voiced their frustrations with a lot of what they've seen unfold since March. Uh, frustration that the declaration has simply been rolled over month to month and is still in place five months later. Uh, frustration that the governor and Secretary of State Lawrence Denny changed the election in midstream and went to a, an all vote by mail spring primary and effectively delayed the election date, you know, pushed the election process back two weeks. Uh, concerns about the governor putting together a committee, which include, included some legislators, but a committee largely made up of non-legislators to decide how to spend $1.25 billion from the federal government, uh, coronavirus aid money from the feds. And all of those frustrations kind of bubbled to the surface. And the emergency declaration became the surrogate for all of those frustrations on the legislative front. And really, I thought one of some of the most interesting stuff that happened this week was the House voting to uh, pass a resolution designed to repeal that emergency declaration immediately. Senate did not go along with that, but did its own resolution that it effectively said, we expect this emergency declaration to go away when we come back in January. Um, and we want to see a lot of legislation in January to address what we've seen unfold the past few few months. You know, legislation about the duration of an, of an emergency declaration, legislation about dispersing emergency dollars, the role of public health districts. Um, Whether the legislature... role in this whole process. Yeah. Whether the legislature can call itself back into session, yeah, yeah. which right now it cannot, and I believe it might take a constitutional amendment yeah. to change that. That. Would, that would require a constitutional amendment, but, you know. Legislators yeah, positioned this as a power struggle between the three different branches of government. You had, at one point, Speaker of the House, Scott Bedke, who... It, it, you know, is very protective of the House and the legislature saying we don't want to become a junior branch of government. We don't want to cede our rights and responsibilities from the governor. And so normally when I see resolutions come out, you know, I kind of smile and, well, we're not going to give these too much, you know, emphasis here. But this was different this week. And this is really becoming a power struggle between the different branches of government. The legislators aren't going to forget this. And even though the House concurrent resolution, which the attorney general said may have been unconstitutional and the sponsoring representative said we think that it does have the force of law and it would undo the emergency order, even though that didn't pass and the Senate didn't touch it, as you said a minute ago and as you made the case in your analysis piece from Thursday, these issues are all going to be back in a matter of a few short months in January when the regular session convenes. It's going to be a very hectic uh, legislative session when, when this group reconvenes in four months, because if you just follow what the Senate laid out in its resolution, you know, what it wants to see done in terms of, of legislation, potential legislation, that's a full session's worth of work right there. Oh, I was just going to say that, yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot there. And there's a lot there with the expectation that we're going to come back to town in January and we're going to get rid of this emergency declaration. There was there were no asterisks there. There are no 
well, if things improve, if case numbers slow down, if the death rate slows down, or if we're if there's a vaccine on the horizon, anything that would kind of foreshadow, hey, we're we're getting out of this uh, pandemic. No, the Senate resolution strictly says we want to get rid of this. We want to get rid of this emergency declaration in January. And more to the point, when Brent Hill, the Senate President Pro Tem, was presenting this bill on the Senate floor, he said, I've spoken to Governor Little. He is in agreement with us about this, and he is comfortable with me saying this on the Senate floor, that he wants to get rid of this emergency declaration come January. Regardless of where we are in January, that is really telling. That, that is really significant. It, it, and, it's very yeah. telling. There's some FEMA dollars, some emergency federal relief dollars that have been tied to that declaration. There was concern that we could jeopardize more than $100 million in federal emergency management relief money uh, if we just undid that this week. But you, you wrote about this in the analysis, and it was kind of in the headline for some, not for all, but for some legislators, it seemed like they were trying to wish away a pandemic. And, yeah. and I saw that on the House floor, whether it was Representative Stephen Harris or Representative Barbara Ehart or Representative Vito Barbieri, and, and the list goes on and on, suggesting that the pandemic is not a problem today if it ever was in the first place. Yeah, I thought that really kind of kind of jumped out at me. I, I don't downplay that there's a a balance of power issue here between the legislative branch and the executive branch. I get that. And I, and I get that for legislators uh, such as Scott Betke, that's a really important thing. I, I, I understand where he's coming from. I think that, he stays I, awake at night worrying about that. 31,000 cases almost right now. More than 300 people have died, and that number has doubled in just the past month. Schools, whether we're talking K-12 or higher education, struggling mightily to figure out, can we open our doors? Can we keep our doors open? Do we do some sort of a hybrid learning approach? Is that the best we can do? Or you know, do kids have to stay home entirely? Against that backdrop, you had this legislature basically saying, in large numbers, you had this legislature saying, we think this pandemic is, we're putting it behind us. We're, you know, you know, we're over this pandemic. Moving and, on. You know, that's the that's the message. That's the optics that came out of this session. And you mentioned Stephen Harris, who was the the architect of the the House's version of the the resolution. You know, saying, "Well, it was scary at first, this pandemic, but we're learning a lot more about it." Well, one of the things we're learning about it is that you know the case numbers have increased rapidly over the summer. They are slowing down, but they really increased rapidly over the summer, even in Stephen Harris's hometown of Meridian. You mentioned Barbara Ehart. On the House floor on Wednesday, she was saying the case numbers, it's dropping, it's going away. It's not. It's even in her hometown. Bonneville County. The numbers have increased sharply. The day she yeah. said that, Bonneville County had, I think, more than 50 new cases. Um, it, it's... Yeah, it, that's that's just not accurate. That's not true. Yeah. To, to say that the, the, the thing is going away. I mean, it's not. I mean, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm just looking at the numbers that the state is presenting. And I'm looking at, you know, what the health experts are looking at. And, you know, it's, 
Are, is it, are the numbers spiking as much as they were spiking a month ago, six weeks ago? No, they no. aren't, but they are still increasing. I mean, we're, we're still looking at, you know, you know, in Ada County, it's more or less typical now to see about a hundred new cases a day. You know, Bonneville County has been a hot spot. Um, you know, Canyon County, Kootenai County, Twin Falls County. And we're seeing even in like small communities. I mean, look at, look at Payette, look at Mackey having to kind of go from face-to-face learning to online learning on a dime. And nobody's rooting for the pandemic here. The facts of the matter are that, you know, we're, we're still right in the middle of this. And that, that, and that was lost, you know, in the, in the dialogue and in, in the debate. In some ways, I, I felt like the legislature was kind of legislators, individual legislators, and a number of them were kind of voicing the same sentiment that the protesters were, were voicing this, you know, frustration with why are we in the middle of this pandemic? Why are we, why are we turning our life upside down because of a virus? And, you know, you didn't have to scratch the surface very, very much to to sense that same sentiment from, from legislators. And it's in defiance of the numbers. It's in defiance of the science. Yeah. And I mean, I I guess I want to go back to one thing from early in the special session, you know, uh, Boise representative, uh, Melissa Wintrow, a Democrat, excused herself from a committee meeting and said, I just can't be here. I, I, I showed up today intending to represent my constituents, but I can't do it in a manner that's unsafe. And this is not social distancing. And she walked out. Yeah, um, I, I think my biggest concern about this session and the reason I was there sparingly, and I'm not going to speak for you, but my biggest concern was with the virus. My, my concern was not as not, not with the protesters. I, I no, you know, we're used to seeing people. With, with we're used to seeing people armed heavily armed at the state house. Legislature, it's almost commonplace. Yeah, my biggest concern was we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we can't really exercise social distancing as much as we would like to. I mean, you know, it, it's it's tough. It's it's a it's a compressed place where everybody knows everybody, and you know, <laughs> you. It's it's hard to keep a six foot bubble around yourself at the state house, and so you know, for me, the decision to to stay away as much as possible was was really being was really driven by the pandemic. Yeah, just to kind of I guess get some final thoughts from my end on the special session, and then I'll turn it back to you. Uh, Governor Little did sign the liability uh, bill, the immunity bill, into law. He also signed. Uh, as of when I'm writing this Friday morning, at least one of the elections bills, the one he signed, had to do uh, with giving election workers, county clerks, those sorts of folks, more time to open and scan and process absentee ballots as they brace for uh, what is likely to be a, a large number of absentee ballots coming up in November. Uh, so we have resolution on those two things. A special session is done and dusted. Won't see the legislators again, uh, likely until December after the election, or once we know the election results, um, then they'll come back for kind of an organizational session, and then the real deal uh, begins early January. Yep. What a week. It was like three days of the week, but what a week it was. Right. But also, a handful of other stories... Um, whether you want to go through the list or spend a little bit of time on individual ones, got a little bit more information about the state's largest school district, West Ada, and how they plan to handle their opening. Um, got some information from Sammy Edge from uh, 
uh, West Ada's meeting and from Boise. A little bit more information. Um, a bunch of good stuff this week, really. The State Board of Education has made a policy change again, uh, having to do uh, with funding, kind of bracing for the fact that you know, maybe it's going to be easier to fund on enrollment if you've got, maybe some kids will start the year blended or online and then maybe or maybe not be going back in person. Um, State Board had a couple of big decisions on Wednesday. They also reinstated the supporting content with the science standards. Uh, this has been a mess. This has been like a, a five years long debate that's just going to keep going, isn't it? You know, there's always a twist and turn in the science standards debate, and you know that's you know, you know that's still something that's going on, and and will will continue to go on. It's been kind of uh, overshadowed by a lot of the uh, the legislative working groups, uh, you know, in the process leading into this week's special session. That uh, we're never far away from a story about science standards, are we? No, we we never really are. Um... You know, so uh, we, we've got those stories. The homepage, www.idahoednews.org, is the best place to stay and get caught up. But, Kevin, you take a look. You took a look at some of the challenges with higher education uh, coming back, going back to school. Yeah, so as, as the legislature was uh, convening Monday morning, uh, seven of the state's eight colleges and universities were open, opening their doors for fall semester. If you remember, Idaho State University opened last week, but now for everybody else, Monday was opening day. And I had a chance to uh, look at kind of how that opening is playing out. I had a chance to talk to uh, a couple of students, but I also had a chance to talk to uh, Boise State President Marlene Trump, University of Idaho President C. Scott Green. And, you know, these next couple of weeks are going to be critical. We'll, we'll get a really good sense of whether the higher education reopen is going to work or not. And we're going to get that pretty quickly. You know, one of the things that was really telling at the University of Idaho last week, heading into this week, uh, a week ago Friday, uh, President Green put out a very blunt memo to the student community in the wake of some parties that had taken place last week on campus and off campus saying, most of you are doing the right thing, but those of you who are, you know, going to parties like this, going to large gatherings, you're undermining all the work that we've done as a university to get you guys back on campus. And if it persists, if it continues, we will do what we have to do to get students uh, off of campus and, and get them out of the university if they don't want to comply with, uh, with, with the wellness guidelines. Very, very stern warning from the president. And I had a chance to talk to one of the uh, members of student government on Monday afternoon, and we talked about it. And his take was, look, I understand where President Green is coming from. He, he, you know, you know, he made clear, you know, where, where, where he is on this. And, and you know, you know, but, you know, and, you know, the student said, look, I understand where, he, where the president's coming from. I think this is what has to be done to keep campus open, but at the same time, I he suspected that some students will look at that and say, wait a minute, you're you're cracking down on off-campus events, you're calling the police out on off-campus events. Uh, we're college students, you know, part of the college experience is uh, is socializing, is you know, getting to know your your fellow students. Well, absolutely. So, I mean, what did they think would happen? And I know that uh, you know the right thing to do, the, the necessary thing to do 
um, is to observe these, you know, restrictions and, and try to minimize the spread of the virus. I understand that. That's totally solid. But what did they think that would happen when you get thousands of 18 to 21 year olds together um, in one small mm -hmm. area? I mean, what did they think would happen? Uh, I mean, it was inevitable, right? And, and I'm not trying to blame the yeah. students at all here, but like, what did you think would happen? You, you get them all together. There's all this uncertainty. You know, they're not able to play sports or go to the extracurricular activities. Are they? Do you just expect them to sit in their rooms all night and do their homework? I mean, at a certain level, like, we're, what did you think would happen? We're a week or so now into students being on campus, and the next week or so, the numbers, uh, I'll watch them very closely, and that's something I'll be uh, yeah. tracking uh, on a daily basis, not just the state's numbers, but U of I has been posting its uh, coronavirus test results. I Idaho State University has been uh, tracking and posting its uh, coronavirus results. Uh, Boise State, the last I heard from them, uh, is hoping to come up with some sort of a public portal for testing results. Um, free editorialization, uh, Boise State, you ought to do it. It's in the public interest. So I hope you do it. And, you know, the intention there seems to be to, to be transparent about what's going on. Next week, you know, that as we head into that two-week incubation period from when students arrived on campus to, you know, to that two-week mark, we'll have a pretty good sense of what's happening with uh, infection rates and uh, case numbers on the campuses. And that's going to go a long way to determining what happens on Idaho campuses. Right now, the numbers aren't uh, aren't too high. Uh, at the U of I, it's in uh, a couple of dozen cases that are active, I wanna say. Uh, Boise State on Monday said they're looking at like seven active cases. Far cry from the University of Alabama, where yeah. they had 500 plus cases uh, reported earlier this week. If you start to get up into those triple digits, if you start to get up into those high uh, concentration rates, it's going to be really difficult to keep uh, campuses open, even as you have them open right now, where you have a, a blend of face-to-face -face learning and online learning. You know, when we talk about Boise State being open, the campus is open, students are in residence halls, but about half of the classes are being held online. Yeah. So it's not normal. It's still a, a very different learning environment, but it's an on-campus environment, which Boise State didn't have in March. None of the universities and colleges had in March. Yeah, it's, it's crunch time already. You know, what happens in these next few days is going to tell us an awful lot about what happens for the rest of the fall. Yeah, I, uh, yeah we're, we're going to continue uh, to watch it and to monitor it, um, have reports from campus and in, in, in Put it all in perspective. It's that's what uh, that's what we'll be doing, um, you know, going forward. So it's been a full week, and we've got a, another full week uh, coming up because uh, we'll be continuing to track the, uh, you know, what's happening on uh, at K twelve and, and, and on the college and university campuses as uh, this uh, very tricky and very uh, complicated reopening uh, resumption of classes uh, continues to unfold. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm making light of, of any of it uh, and any of my, my comments. Obviously, I respect the fact that this is an unprecedented pandemic as likely the challenge of our lifetimes. And so I don't want to be seen as diminishing that um, 
but also no, uh, it's you know yeah you know, it's it's very serious. We're going to continue to monitor it. We're going to continue uh, to cover it. Obviously, we're focused on uh, the impact on education, both K-12 public schools, colleges, and universities, uh, but sort of by necessity, um, politics and policy obviously play into that, and the Venn diagram sort of overlaps and eats itself uh, almost when you look at you know where we're at right now. But, um, you know, that is where we're at. We've got more coverage coming next week. We will be back for another new edition of the Extra Credit uh, podcast next week. We'll be closer to state's largest school district, West Ada. Um, Their opening day isn't until September. um, But uh, September 8th is the uh, the opening day, so we'll we'll be watching what happens there. We'll be continuing to watch what happens in Boise, Nampa, which has gone completely online. But, you know, as we kind of alluded to earlier, this is playing out in in small communities as well, whether it's Mackey having to go to online, whether it's uh, West Side District, one of the districts that's been, you know, where administrators have been itching to reopen, uh, they're they're trying to do a full full blown reopen. We're going to keep watching this because it, it's a story that affects, uh, you know, it touches literally every community in the state, and uh, it touches you know every family in the state that has a kid in school. So. We'll, we've got our hands full trying to uh, chronicle a very different uh, back-to-school process. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's um, everything that I wanted to get to this week. If you want to follow along, two good ways to do that. Updating the homepage every day, uh, www.idahoednews.org. If you're on Twitter and you want to give us a follow, at Idaho Ed News, uh, we tweet the links to our big stories and we live tweet some of the big meetings around the state board of education or the legislature or whatever's going on at the time. Those are two good ways to stay in touch. But, uh, man, what a week. Uh, I am looking forward to the weekend and a brief reprieve because I know we'll be back at it next week. But thanks so much, as always, um, for spending some time with us. We always have a lot of fun breaking down this really complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week. 